Well, he told me he didn't allow himself to have many friends, so can I say my drinking buddy, Bernard Kay, an actor I long admired and was thrilled to get the chance to work with on the Doctor Who DVD range. Uh, it had been a long day. I'd already done the sensor rights. Halfway through Colony in Space, nipped out for a fag. Bernard nipped out, produced a hip flask, said, it's good stuff, it's Glenfiddich. And uh, it was indeed. And I knew then we'd get on. Um, and we did. And uh, I was only with him a few weeks ago. Uh, and didn't know then that it was the last time I'd see him. As I'm sure you've now seen, Bernard passed away over the Christmas period at the age of 86. This is part two of a chat I did with him in 2013. It's quite noisy, apologies for that. No mention of Doctor Who. Um, we covered that in the released version, but he talked at length and with great honesty and uh, insight and combativeness. And uh, so I think now is the time to hear a bit more about the life and work of Bernard Kay. So, um, this is part two. We've had a bit of a break because um, my subject is far more interesting um, and, and I thought deserved deserved a little sabbatical with a little bit of a, a brandy. So we're going to run through the televisions. But a friend of mine recently found a scrap of a clip that I think I sent you a link to, but I don't know if you watched, of a production of The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. Yeah. And I looked at it, and there was a man dressed as a lion, but it's not a big CGI lion-type costume. It's, it's, he's in stockings with a lion. And it's you! Playing, giving your Aslan. Yes, this, this was... <laughs> the, the really... The, the first... I had to have a face mask made. And I don't know whether anyone's had that done, but it's very... It makes you paranoid. You're cut off from the world. And then they milk made the face and then the costume and the final result was that this face mask locked everything into position the mane of everything there was a zip down the back covered by a kind of rippling mane Aslan wasn't supposed to have anything resembling genitalia so the front was smoothed out and it took me an hour and a half to get into this and three quarters of an hour to get out of it. And it was ABC television, and we did it down by the river, a lot of it. And the first shoot we did, we shot two episodes together, and I hadn't taken this into account when I drank my beer for lunch. And I couldn't get out of this damned outfit. It would have taken over three hours of shooting time to get into it, out of it and into it to go to the loo so I if Aslan in the first two episodes was cross-legged that's why <laughs> but the really funny thing about that was Patsy came down to join me on a shoot of something totally different when this was being shown and we were in the lounge of an hotel on a Sunday afternoon after lunch and on came the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe. And I said to somebody, you know, would you mind if we had this on, please? No, no, it's quite all right. Could I have another gin, please? No, fine, fine, fine. And we watched. And up came Aslan. And I was quite proud of this performance, really, and my subdued roaring and all that. And this woman got her second gin and tonic, and she looked around at us, and she said, Good God. What is that? It's a man or a dog? 
and um, I'll throw a few things out at you, okay. um, and you can just tell me what, if anything, you remember them. We've touched upon the Shakespeare's you did on television. You did. You were Horatio in Hamlet. I was Horatio, about which I don't remember anything. And you did. Um, Macduff. Uh, I did. Yeah. Does Shakespeare work on television? It can, but it needs a very good hand. Um, it's really. It's not just about television. This is a, really about presenting a modern audience with Shakespeare because it, and especially if you read the scholars if you read the scholars who do what they call close readings of the text a production of Hamlet would last seven hours because they insist on everything getting its proper stress this is impossible you cannot do it um, Edmund Keane and reportedly Laurence Olivier in his wake lit up Shakespeare by flashes of lightning and that to me seems a very honourable way of doing it I have to admit that Gilgood to me was boring sonorous beautifully spoken and boring so that's my own prejudice out of the way now then to get to television with Shakespeare television possesses a, a, a faculty that theatre doesn't have that is cutting so you can afford, I think, to give television almost the full weight of the text because you can save time on cutting and the rhythm of the cuts. Do, uh, do, do you understand what I mean? So that on, in theatre, you're constantly worried about losing the audience's attention because you get funny words, you get funny structures of lines, you get people going on and on about, about things that don't really affect your life which demands a hell of a lot of an actor's intensity to get it across. So I don't know. The, 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 it's very difficult. Do you pause? Do you go with the iambic pentameter, the five-footed length, you know? Um, what do you do? And I think, finally, it all depends on the actor, is the answer and the director's ability to use the actors he has. You have the script, you can alter this a bit, a bit here and there. Like for instance, when I played Shylock, uh, you have to say a sentence which goes, uh, when all the earlings which were streaked and pied should fall to Laban's hire or something, and the word earlings just puts you off. You, the audience are left wondering. So when I played Shylock, I said, younglings, then they know. You're talking about lambs, sheep, bank. But earlings, I think, is where it's permitted. And a lot of it is, how far are you permitted to do this? How far are you permitted to break up the five-footed line, the iambic pentameter, to make sense of it? And it finally boils down to the director's rapport with the actors and their combined ability to get the information to the audience without it sounding boring. And I suddenly realised, after I've said all that, I've said nothing. It's a problem that has to be solved. That's all there is to it. The Shakespearean audiences laughed at things. I think anyone who makes sense of the porter in Macbeth deserves a prize. Anyone who tries to make it funny deserves drumming out of the profession. 
it's just not funny. A French tailor, that doesn't mean anything to us. It meant a lot to his audience. So it's, it's, a, it's all, I'm, I'm really avoiding directly the question. It's all a question of do you make it work or don't you? And how you do it is just up to you. you know? Well, talking of actors making things work, um, you've worked with a lot of um, actors over the years. Who were the best actors that you worked with? One, as in to work with, and two, as in as being very good actors. I've got to contest what you're saying. I do not believe you can use the word best or worse or good or bad about actors. They're too woolly. If, if you say this egg is good or that apple is bad, you know what you mean. If you say best about actors, you've got, you can't. You can only describe in what way they impressed you. In other words, for diction, for sheer diction and energy, nobody has ever touched Olivia, ever. But that is not to say he's a better actor than Guinness. I can't use those words. I mean, I've actually, it's extraordinary this, because I've actually fantasized being interviewed, not by you, but by somebody on television. And the, Give me time. <laughs> give you time. No, it's weird, because it's specific. And I don't know, it must have come out of a dream that somebody on television has said to me, you just, uh, in your book, which isn't published, as you know, you called Lawrence Harvey a bad actor. And in my vision, in my dream, in my fantasy, I say, that's rubbish. I would never call any actor good or bad. What I've done is describe what I saw of him and what I heard of him. So, coming back to your question... I've no answer to it. I've worked with Redgrave, Olivia, Peggy Ashcroft, Celia Johnson, Marius Goring. Now, Redgrave to me always, except in comedy, at which I thought he was great, like in The Lady Vanishes, the film, I thought he did that wonderfully, treading that lightweight gap between thriller and comedy. Do, do you know the film? Yeah, right? I, did, yeah. I thought he was wonderful in that. I was in a Shakespeare season with him, The Stratford upon Avon, where he played Shylock. And he's, he was six foot three, I think, something towering. And he had extraordinarily resplendent costume. And I'm not sure about that, but that's my own thing. I think Shylock was not sure. But he mocked and mowed in the first scene with Bassanio and Antonio. And to me, this seemed all wrong. This seemed to me a mistake of judgment. He pulled it off because he was a, an extraordinarily efficient actor. But it gives Shylock nowhere to fall. I'm, I think, I hope, I'm going to do Shylock. In, uh, this is very problematical, but maybe I am. And I see Shylock, I've played him twice before, and I, I see him... You don't need to stress Jew. It's there. It's everywhere in the play. So what else is he? He's German. He comes from Frankfurt. You can pick that up from the play. He's the most successful moneylender in all Venice, otherwise why does Antonio come to him? 
So he's not more, he's proud. Who are you to come to me, little man? Then there's somewhere to fall from. Now I'm got, I, I diverge. I'm coming back to your question now. The best, as a, an example of what to do with a bad text, for instance, is Olivia. I was with him in Titus Andronicus. And it's a dreadful play. I mean, it's just awful. And he made things, not only out of the great moments, but out of the little things that an actor who doesn't scrutinise the part would miss. There's a bit where he's handed over all his power to Saturninus after coming back from conquering, uh, what's her name, the queen of the whatnots, Tamara, the queen of the Goths. And he's handed all his power over to Saturninus, then he suddenly begins to realise. And right at the end of a scene, they're saying that uh, Saturninus proposes a hunting party. And the end of the scene is one of those awful Shakespeare couplets just to get rid of a scene. And uh, it's not even a couplet. And he took hold of it and shook it. And it is something like, I'm quoting from 1957. Uh, and I, I have hounds that will outrun the summing stag and chase the hare until the rising morn, something like that. And he made it into the craven, begging image of a man trying to get his way back into favour. So he made it. And I have hounds that may outrun the summing hare and go. And he, he suddenly made the whole thing live. 99 actors out of 100 would miss that. He never missed a, anything. And his breath control. I am the sea, hark how her sides do flow. She is the weeping welkin, I the earth. This is all from 57. He hammered it into my head. On and on without a tremor. No loss of support, you know. And people used to say of him, ah, oh, technical. I say to them, do what he did, technically, and let me see you move an audience. You can't do that just technically. You use your technique to convey it. You know, Guinness took the opposite. So I can't say good or best, and he came in from under. Sure. You know. And so when he was Menenius to Olivia's um, Coriolanus, and bent and picked up the wreath. Your heart bled for him without him saying a word. You know. His able drugger in the alchemist, who can play that for God's sake? And he made it so funny and heart-touching, this little man trying to please people. So that's another way of doing it. Ralph Richardson, who wanted you to think he wasn't acting at all. You expected him to pull out a handkerchief at any moment and, and you know, just, uh, oh dear boy, really? That's why, to me, he wasn't very good at the heroic. Yeah. To me, he didn't succeed at all. But when he failed at the heroic, he was so wonderful about it. There are two stories about Richardson when he did Macbeth. Uh, I'm funny you should say that because I had a letter from Jerome Willis yes. who was young Seward to Richardson's Macbeth Was he? Yes, and you know Jerome of course Anyway Well I wonder if Jerome and I of course come from the old Vic Theatre School together and got Stratford upon Avon And you were in Ludlow and Macbeth together 
of course he played Banquo and I played Macduff. And he did a dreadful trick on me. I'll tell you in a minute. But, um, I'm sorry. You're talking Richardson. Richardson, Richardson. It was disaster. And he was seen in the wings by one of the young stage management looking down at the floor in the wings in the dark and she said can I help you Ralphie and he said I don't know my dear if you come across a, a kind of tiny lost talent <laughs> and the other one was in the middle of the whole thing on stage he turned to a spear carrier who was facing out front and Richardson was facing up stage and he said give us a tenner <laughs> and this guy looked frozen and Richardson said if you don't give us a tenner I'll put it about you were in this production with me <laughs> so I don't know whether Jerome heard either of those but there you go. <laughs> Jerome Willis ah. and playing oh, Banquo and I played you. Macduff. Now, you know who Harry Andrews was. I do indeed. You do. And you know he was notorious for bumbling, waffling, going off the text and generally messing it up but somehow coming out of it. So we were doing Macbeth in Ludlow Castle and it's a shell. And our dressing rooms were right down in what used to be the dungeons. And to get up to what to the audience was ground level, stage level, you had to climb up scaffolding and swing yourself out onto the stage. I mean, doing Macduff, doing horror, 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 trying to hold your sword in one hand and your cloak in the other and swing yourself up the scaffolding and do that and be horrified, you know. Anyway, I was climbing the scaffolding one afternoon to go into the England scene where Macduff tells Malcolm all his woes yeah. and Macduff in the scene has this line what all my pretty chickens and their dam at one fell swoop so I was climbing up the scaffolding and Jerome Willis who was playing Banquo said Bernard he said shut up shut up Jerome I said, no, I've got to tell you what Harry did. I said, shut up! And I'm stuck on this damn scaffold. And he said, what Harry actually said was, what? All my chitty prickings and their bum at one swell foop? Oh, You still, you got it right though, I take it. He, he didn't put you off. I didn't hear anything to the contrary. <laughs> um, other tellies, other tellies. There are some good tellies here. Um, one that I have particular affection for, and I have to say, as an actor spotter, and I, I've got a good, no I, I remember faces, I've always admired your work and noticed you in things. I watched the Michael Bryant episode of Colditz because I read about it in Kenneth Branagh's autobiography where Branagh said it's one of the greatest performances he's ever seen. And there's this amazing performance from a big, lunkish guard um, who finds it difficult to express himself and ends up being the best friend of Michael Bryant. I didn't realise it was you until the end because you shaved your head, you were, you were massive. I didn't quite realise... I mean, you're... you're 
big in it, and I and and I didn't realise it was you. And I I know Brian's performance is excellent, but I don't think it would have been as excellent if you hadn't gone on that journey with him. And it's a great piece of television, that. Well, that's very nice of you, Toby. Um, this the, actually the whole thing about that Colditz is extraordinary. Um, I was in Spain on holiday expecting to come back to England and then fly out to Malta to do a film in which I was going to play a nasty Mediterranean police chief. Um, I thought about it, I always think about things. And I thought, how can I appear arrogant without doing a lot of heavy acting? And I had a beard. And I thought to myself, supposing I shaved my head and cut down the side of the beard so I was left with just a moustache and a little chin beard and a bald head. That's arrogant. And I was drunk. So I did it. We're in a flat in Spain, on the beach, near the beach, and I clippered my hair, and I did it with a rotary shaver, and I was brown all over, and my head looked as though I had leprosy. And my wife literally burst into tears. So I thought, there was a place just north of Benidorm called Altea, and they had a marketplace, so I thought, I rubbed some olive oil on my head, and it did look awful. And I thought, if I can go down to the market and walk around the market out in the open air with people looking at me and get away with this, I can do anything. So I did. And gradually the top of my hair got brown and I shaved it closer and closer until it was shaved smooth and brown and I had this little moustache and a little beard. And I got a message from my agent. The film had been cancelled. So we went back to England, and there I am, with bald head, quite brown, nice, little moustache and chin beard. And I got a call from agent saying there's a director called Michael Ferguson. I'd never heard of him. I'd never met him. He wants you to play a part in Covid. Sent me the script. I thought, this is wonderful. Shaved off the moustache and the beard, kept shaving the head, turned up at the first rehearsal, and they all said, how brave of you. Because <laughs> I had my hat on the whole time. <laughs> About looking big, I don't know, but I do know I felt... The story was that my brother had suffered from the same mental condition that Michael Bryant's character was from. And uh, I suppose I was thinking paternalism toward my dead brother... But what I like about it, and, and the, the, the clever thing about the plot, is that Michael Bryant's character is faking insanity to try and get sent yeah. back to England, and you are sent to check to on shut him. him out. And you're, they could get repatriated if they were insane. Indeed, and you, and we, there is that suggesting the the thing that your brother had had that happen to. So when you first meet him, you're horrible to him, and you bully oh, yeah. him. I smash his so smash his aeroplane. Spitfire. Yeah. Then I give him a message. Yeah. And the, but the the one I think the what really the, the way that you work is that he's the character you play is very 
he is sim- a simple man. Yes. And that's what you don't overcomplicate yes. it. And that's what, to me, makes it so affecting, is that I think an actor could pirouette and do gymnastics with yeah. him, and it would be an actor's exercise. Whereas what the real, the honesty about it is the fact that he is this very simple man, and so therefore the truth that he speaks is volume. Well, I, I think it's, it goes back to what I've said to you before, that I always go off the script... Of course we adorn the script. Of course we find things that might illuminate it. But to me anyway, you don't do extraneous things. You don't do things so that somebody will say, oh, I remember that bit, because then you've messed up the whole performance. And I think it dictates... I don't know, it, it probably sounds a bit precious, but it dictates itself to me. Whatever I'm reading... If I'm reading a book, I find myself mouthing it and wondering what it would sound like if somebody read it aloud, you know. And it, it just is, it's... Oh, I don't know. I know a lot of actors would disagree with me. I find the process of acting very simple. Really, basically simple. As long as you're honest with yourself and you don't start messing about with it. Sometimes, because of the way a character is written, or maybe the author isn't quite such a good writer as he thinks he is, you get into a bit of a mess. I'll give you, can I give you an illustration? Yeah, I do. Well, I, I mentioned before that I did comedians yeah. for Adrian Noble down in Bristol. Well, I'd love doing that part. I think there's a lot about the play that's rubbish. I mean, the, uh, seeing a punishment block in Auschwitz would stop a comedian ever smiling again but still that you know okay you take that but there was one line in it where he's talking to Gedin Price uh, towards the end where he says you, you know Gedin and again this is from 40 years ago 30 years ago so it's memory he says you know Gedin when chimpanzees bare their teeth they're not laughing they're afraid We've got to do something about it, Gavin. So I, I couldn't. I don't know what that meant, honestly. I still don't know what it meant because I went to Adrian and I, I said, "Are you in touch with Trevor Griffith?" And he said, "Yes." I said, "Well, would you ask him what that line means?" Because I don't understand it literally. And a few days later, he said, oh, Bernard, he said, um, I've been in touch with, with Trevor. And he says, if Bernard Kay doesn't like the line, tell him to cut it. Which I don't think was very helpful. No. At all. No. I was making a sincere query. And I think that was quite patronising, really. Yeah. Yeah, you were trying to find... Uh, yeah, what you, I wanted you to want do, to do the best by the yeah. author. Yeah. Anyway, there we go. What do, I mean, let's talk about it. I mean, because that performance from Michael Bryant is, is extraordinary. Yeah. Um, did, it, did, I mean, did he work hard on that, or was he just one of those actors? I mean, it's... I've no idea. Michael was a mystery wrapped in an enigma. He really was. He pretended the whole business wasn't worth doing. I'm not knocking him. He pretended... He's like one of those people you meet at school who swan their way through ABs and pretended never to have worked. Now, fine, if that's what he wanted other actors to believe, I don't believe it. I don't think you can get the results he got by doing... But he chose to believe that. Did I tell you in this interview about 
how he nearly made me drunk. No, we talked about that over, over lunch. Shall I? So, yeah. Shall I tell you? Because this time, it sounds ridiculous. This was 1972, and I'd been acting in television since 1957. And I'd never felt nervous before. And I felt nervous. And Michael and I were in the canteen before the show. And he said to me, you, you, um, you seem to me a little bit tight. I said, well, I am. And it, it's never happened to me before. I'd never get nerves on television. And he said, what do you drink? And I said, no, 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 no. And he said, no, no, tell me, what do you drink? And I said, well, I don't know, really. Um, well, for a quick one, a, a vodka and tonic. This was about, I don't know, two and a half hours before we started taping. I don't know, two, and a, two, two and a half, anyway. And uh, he said, have a vodka and tonic now, and then have another one an hour from now. I said, I can't, Michael. No, I, I can't. He said, come on, honestly. He said, just have the first one. If you, if you don't like that, you've plenty of time to get over that. So I had it. So we talked and we talked. I'd forgotten if he was drinking or not. And uh, after an hour or an hour and a half or so, I thought, yeah, I could do with another one. And I had it. And it's not often that I see myself on telly and I think, yes. That was on, that was good, but I did when I saw that one. And in fact, that episode won prizes. It won a German prize, I think, in Munich. It was re-shown in England quite a few months afterwards. And then I thought to myself, hold on, you know, you can't do this. You can never do this again because, you know, one, two... So I don't know what Michael did, but I, after that, I just didn't. But it did help me for that performance. I don't know where we'll go with this, but um, when you did... You were reunited with Maurice Perry when you did an episode of Survivors together. Yes. Um, but wasn't that the time that, that Patsy died and you, you carried on working on the show? Or, or did you did you do that job? Or was that the first job that you did back? I just remember listening to the DVD commentary, and I think it's Tristan de Vere Cole says, "Oh, and um, well, I'm surprised that Bernard didn't." Jump. All right, I'm going to tell you. I think Tristan behaved very badly towards me. We finished the show before Christmas. I went home for Christmas, New Year. Patsy died in the February. Tristram got on to my agent, Howard Pays, CCA, and asked if I would go back up into Derbyshire and do some retakes. And I said no. And he, the message came back, please, would you, because he needs this to save the show. And they gave Tristram my telephone number, which was not done. Agents don't give directors, their actors, telephone number. And he got on to me. And he swore to me. I said, but this is stupid. That contract finished before Christmas. That was the end of the job. This is a new job. I want a new contract if I'm going to do it. And he said, please, please, you see, it really, my whole career depends on this. And 
uh, I, I can only pay. I forgot what it was. It was way below. It wasn't treated as a new contract. It was treated as though it was retakes on the original contract. And I was in a mess. My head was in a mess. And I said, all right. And I went up to Derbyshire. Unfortunately, Ray Thalys yeah. was in it. Lovely, lovely young man. I can't think why he slipped off the radar. I thought he was smashing. Very good looking, very diffident, very quiet. He always used to get up at five in the morning and take his red setters out for a run up in Derbyshire before we began, you know. But he told me that he had a new contract, so it had all been a lie. That is truth, it's on record, it's not capable of interpretation. And I never spoke to Tris afterwards. ask you anything more about survivors then because that's obviously <laughs> well I rode in the the last the first bit before the Christmas I rode this lovely old thing called Hercules who it took me half an hour to get him to walk and I remember finally getting him over a jump and I said good old Hercules they couldn't use it because of the soundtrack and I said why can't you put it anyway it couldn't but after when I went back up there they gave me a mare called Ebony and she didn't know what walk meant and with difficulty, she didn't know what trot meant. And she, anyway, we did it, but um, it wasn't happy. Um, very British coup was very good. Yes, I enjoyed that. Small part, very small part. But I have to tell you, I saw some of the remake a little while ago. And A, I didn't think the whole thing was as good. I thought it was too messy and involved unstructured and you know too I don't know post reality really and the guy who played my part I didn't, didn't get at all I deliberately played it right down and the last line I had was sit down Mr Jeremy Young played the part who was trying to intervene in the broadcast that's right uh... sit, sit down Mr somebody I've forgotten his name and I was told to say it really hard and I thought to myself I'm not going to and I just said sit down Mr Sun and they took it Do you not have a line after that though? because I seem to recall then you're in the car with Ray McAnally Oh yes, say, voting I, I didn't Nobody can you. tell me how to vote or, yes. I, I, yes, I didn't yes. vote for you but I know what's right Yes, yes I, oh, I've forgotten that came afterwards Yes, yeah. but that's the line that sticks in my mind uh, that I had the guts to stick with my instinct and the director said Mick Jackson. Yeah, yeah. He said, you were right. Afterwards. You know. And you and Jeremy Young. Because Jeremy, Jeremy Young was in the first ever Doctor Who story. You know. Was he? Yeah. Yeah, well, I didn't... I, I worked with Kate O'Mara in a, an episode of something that Robert Vaughan did. He did nothing except look in his suitcase, make a couple of bets or bet on the stock exchange or something, do his lines and go. But Eartha Kitt was in it. I do, sometimes my mouth just runs away with me, totally. And I went in for my first... We were doing it in a theatre somewhere in North London with the circle. It was like an Arab village in Fresco, all around the circle. I can't remember where it was. I went to the makeup room about 7.30 in the morning or something. And Eartha was in the makeup chasing. And I was called 
for 7.45 and I was there at 7.30 and by 8 o'clock she was still in the makeup chair. And I don't know whether you know, but she had or had pop marks in her skin. And believe it or not, I actually heard myself say, why don't you try coffee-coloured polyfiller? And she said, and you are? <laughs> and I said, Bernard Kane. She said, well, Bernard, would you reach under that chair? And, there's a, and I pulled it out. It was a cool bag with champagne and orange juice in it. And we sat there and drank that while she got made up. You have a way of making it impression upon people. Um, look, I'm going to round this off because I think we're much better off um, chatting without this big microphone thing. But there are a couple of things that I think the listeners might have... You did a thing called Century Falls that was written by Russell T. Davis, who... It was, w- went, by Colin Camp. Yeah, as, I mean, is there something... Because Russell T. Davis, as you know, relaunched Doctor Who. I know, yes. Which, so... I never understood it. What, the show? I never understood what it was about. Colin and I had worked together before, and I was playing a knob, which doesn't come natural to me. Um, but Colin was very patient. Um, in fact, a friend of mine, uh, my best friend, came up to York to see us doing studio work, and I had to do a shot on a pool table, and it took 17 takes. <laughs> and I said to Colin, and I had dialogue with it, you know, and I said, can't you just put it near... He said, no, it won't look right. So, and he's so patient, you know. And Margaret said afterwards, God, he was... I'd have shouted at you. And I said, I'd have cried, you know. Uh, but I got it, finally. Yeah. And um, a friend of mine won't forgive me unless I ask you about his favourite series, which is Jonathan Creek, in which you had a nice part as a baddie. It, yes, I loved it. I loved it. Um... It was just a giggle of a part, really, you know. The whole thing was a lovely giggle. You did. I played a hard, re- restrained uh, servant, manservant, ju- chauffeur. And it was that simple. You know, there are some parts, actually, for actors. We say, people say afterwards, that was wonderful. And it's a breeze. You can do it standing on your head, you can do it asleep, because it's, your, it's just one of those things you can do. You know, and, and that was one of them. Would, would you have had to have auditioned for that, though? Or would that have been I don't awful? think so. I think somebody rang me. I've forgotten who directed it now. I was the manservant of this comedian uh, who was killed, and he had this posh house on the edge of a cliff with a road going down like that and then a shark flattening out at the bottom. And they gave him a Rolls Royce to drive. And I said, forget the director, I said, this is wrong. You don't want a Rolls Royce for this. You want something like a super posh Land Rover. It's on the end of a cliff. It's down a road, you know. Oh, no, no, no. So I did it at whatever speed they told me to do it. The oil tank ground on the bottom. The owner of the car is screaming. The director's screaming. And I'm saying, listen, there's only one director. What do I do? And he said, do it again. Do it 10 miles an hour slower, you know. But it's the kind of thing you have to cope with you have to make your mind up and you have to say there's only one director sure you can't be bullied you know and we have to talk about a part that we've talked about without microphones and I know that is very special to you which was the part that uh, Pete Postlethwaite played in the film of Brastoff that yeah. you did on tour yeah. and that was that was a part that you, in, you, you, you oh 
it was, um, I can't remember what had just gone before, but it was bliss. It was absolute bliss. Um, the director, Neil Birch, uh, uh, I don't know, again, I didn't interview him, but I, I can't remember what I talked about. And later, Neil and I, the director and I, did an interview for Birmingham Radio. And it was wonderful, actually. She said, all right, uh, Mr. K, Mr. Birch, are you both ready? All right, here we go. Now I am giving you... And her voice dropped a whole octave to do the interview, you see. And she said, now, um, Bernard, um, why do you think you got the job? Because it was a big hit. And I said, I'm not sure, because as far as I remember, all I did through the whole interview was to tell jokes. And she said, oh, well, Mr. Birch, uh, why did you give him the job? And he said they were good jokes. <laughs> but I've got to tell you, when I lifted that baton, because the, the, the middle thing, the, the big thing he directs, conducts, is the middle movement of the Aaron Huet Concerto, which is far and away one of my favourite pieces of music. You know it? I don't, I'm not a classic. May I do it? Yes. And off it goes, roaring up. It's a guitar concerto, but um, in the brass band, the, the uh, solo is done by the flugelhorn. Anyway, I've done a week's rehearsal, and now I, I directed altogether six brass bands. They're all amateurs. They don't. They only get paid every now and again, like this. You know, they're amateurs. They've, they've got dates. Amateurs and. I went and stood outside this room and Neil said to me, now then, he said, there they are. And there were 36 people in this room. This was 2003. They were all dragging on cigarettes, clogging away out of cans. And I thought, what the hell am I going to do? How am I going to get control of this lot? Now, as a fact, I was a sergeant in the army. So I put my baton under my arm like the sergeant's pasty. And I walked in, and I shouted, All right, settle down! And they did. And I thought later, what would I have done if they hadn't? They'd have eaten me alive, you know. And about four days later, this guy came up to me, Neil, very big. This was the Starbridge, they're a big, big brass band, you know. They'll back me, they'll back me up on this. And he said, and he's so big, he played the corner, you could hardly see it in his hand, you know. He said, Bernard, can I say this? I said, what? Yes. He said, when you came in the other night, and shouted at me, we all thought, what a bastard he is. <laughs> do, you, do you mind if we talk briefly about um, Patsy? Because she's been a thread all the way through our conversation. And um, so people listening might not know that we're talking about the actress Patricia Haynes, who was a big television name, wasn't she? She was a television star. Uh, and, and a uh, fine actress. Yes, she was, she was a better actress than she ever believed. Um, and in fact, she was cast a lot because of her looks. I mean, she was stunning. I don't know whether you... No, I, I do, I do. No, uh, if you think Ava Gardner... Um, Sophia Loren kind of beauty with green eyes she was she was stunning and she couldn't help it she came from Yorkshire um, and she played women who stole other women's husbands so she had equal fan mail and hate mail I've got letters 
through her from uh, she seems somehow to attract a lot of money this is a long time ago she'd been dead 36 years but she seemed to attract a lot of men of very kind of John Bookham type countrymen with sticks and shotguns and hunting dogs that was for some reason and she got a string of them from one man who poured his heart out to her, you know. And I used to sit next to her on the couch, holding her hand, watching her on the television and looking at the television and thinking, go, oh, I fancy that, you know. And, um, yeah, she was wonderful. to them I think he would have appreciated that uh, it's not much else to say really that's horrible news um, I would like to dedicate this to the memory of that fine actor gifted sensitive writer and uh, yes my drinking buddy Bernard Kay